All right, well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to 1 Timothy chapter 6. That's where we're going to be in a minute. Again, I want to say a congratulations to our graduates. Big day for you guys over these last few days. And some of you, or Hannah's already left for today, and some of you yesterday. So, uh, you know, I still remember my day. It wasn't as distant as this guy's, but... <clears throat> But um, an amazing time. Before we get into 1 Timothy 6, I want to uh, let you just want to share something with you that we are super excited about here uh, at Providence. And that is, if you, especially if you are an actual covenant member, you'll know that we are a church that is led by elders. And so we have, <clears throat> we have three vocational elders, and that's Pastor Chad and Pastor John and myself. And then we have two lay elders or pastors, and those are Steve Qualls and Jeff Shaver. And these men all together, the five of us, work together to shepherd the church, to lead the church, to love the church, to, to pastor you together. And we're always looking for other men to add to that list that God is raising up and he's giving, Ephesians 4, to the church as a gift to be received by the church and help pastor you. And so through months of prayer and conversation uh, and thought, um, we feel like the Lord has given to Providence another man to be uh, and come alongside of us and help elder you, help pastor you. And that man is Jeff Williams. And so we will be uh, recommending him. Biblically, elders appoint elders, but here at Providence, we enjoy, we like to have a vote of affirmation. And so on Sunday night, June the 10th, at our next regular members meeting, three weeks from now, we will be bringing him with a formal, you know, uh, for a formal vote of affirmation for him to come alongside uh, and join this elder board and be received by you as a gift from God to you. And so I'm telling you that now, three weeks in advance, because if there is any reason that you know of that would disqualify Jeff, according to 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, from this role that we're not aware of, that we don't know about, that over these next three weeks you would come and let either myself or Steve or Jeff or Chad or John know. All right, but barring that, we look forward to voting on Jeff Sunday night, June the 10th, and then the next week installing him as an elder here at Providence. And he'll take vows before you and to you uh, on that day. So that's an announcement. The Lord's up to some good things. Uh, very excited about this. Excited to see Jeff come alongside of us, uh, barring any Thing unforeseen. When we look for elders, one of the things we do is we just kind of look around and see who's already eldering. And Jeff pastors well already. So we look forward to bringing him on formally as an elder. But this morning we're going to be in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, like I talked about. And the whole book of 1 Timothy, we're, we're almost to the end, all right? Next week we will wrap it up. But the whole kind of theme of the book is even on the front of your bulletins is this call to fight the good fight. That's what the whole book is about, is a call to fight the good fight of the faith, to wage the good warfare, to live out the implications of the gospel. And so thus far through this study, we've seen a call to fight for sound doctrine. We've seen a call to fight for right practice in corporate worship, right valuing of women, 
for right leaders in the church. We've seen a call for the church to live out its social responsibilities towards older men and older women, younger men and younger women, towards widows, towards elders, and our places of employment. But in the midst of all of these explicit applications, there's just been this overarching call for those who are truly Christians to train themselves to pursue godliness, to fight for practical godliness in their life. And it's a fight because it doesn't just happen. So 1 Timothy 4 talks about the fact that we have to train ourselves for godliness. We have to fight for it. And so as we come now to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10 that Becca read just a moment ago, we have Paul giving us kind of another training plan for personal and practical godliness. And it's a training plan that has three simple, almost went oso oh for those of you who have kids uh, that are preschoolers. Three simple steps, that's all you need. It's three, that was, forget that. Back to this. <laughs> three, yeah, practical steps. And they all connect to money in some way, shape, or form, but they go far, far, far beyond that. And so let me just kind of give them to you right now, out, straight out of the gate. You can write them down, and then uh, you can listen as we make our way. So number one, beware of the deception of pride. Beware of the deception of pride. Number two, and this is where we'll spend the most amount of time, learn contentment. Learn contentment. And number three, guard against greed. Guard against greed. So just kind of a, some, some, a, a training plan for practical godliness. And so let's jump into it and just make our way through it. So number one again, beware of the deception of pride. Look at verse 3 with me again. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, in the midst of this giant run-on sentence, all right, and in the Greek, this entire section, 3 through 10, is one sentence. It's the mother of all run-ons. So, when I write a paper or write an article or anything, I, John just torches it with run-on sentences. And I'm like, it's biblical, man. Paul does it. Big run-on sentence here. But in the midst of this, you can see, if you look closely, the flow and deception of pride. And so pride, particularly spiritual and intellectual pride, begins with being puffed up with conceit. Right, thinking that you know more than anyone else, that you are smarter, that you are more enlightened, when in actuality, verse 4, you understand nothing. The New English Bible translates this, you are a pompous ignoramus. But you're puffed up, you're conceited, prideful, and so what happens in that is you begin then to drift from orthodox Christianity, thinking that you're smarter and more enlightened than Scripture and 2,000 years 
of theological rigor and reflection. And so in your pride and in your conceit, you drift to verse 3, a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. And the word there, sound, all right, in the Greek is hygienousine. You can hear our word hygiene in it. And so in your pride now, you are, because you're more enlightened, you're more, you know, you're smarter, you now reject healthier hygienic teaching, healthy teaching, healthy doctrine. You now reject that because you're so much smarter than everyone else. And so listen real close for a second. Unchecked pride in some way, shape, or form always leads to the development of a different doctrine of some kind. Always. Super easy example is someone who would say something, well, I don't need the church to grow in Christ. That's a prideful and arrogant statement. That's a different doctrine than what the Bible says, all right? It always leads to some sort of different doctrine that does not accord with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then that pride that leads to a different doctrine, then that different doctrine leads to different behavior. And so for the guys here, verse 4, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction. And so now because you're smarter than everyone else, you love to fight. You love to quarrel. And in doing so, you stir up dissension that leads to envy, to slander, to evil suspicions, to friction, or persistent collisions, as one commentator called it. Perpetual detonations, miniature A-bombs, and then sometime H-bombs, so that the symbol of the church ceases to be the cross and becomes a glowing mushroom cloud. And praise the Lord, there's no mushroom cloud here, but what about in your personal relationships? Either way, if you crave controversy, if you love to fight, you love to quarrel, and you don't mind slandering someone telling half-truths and ignoring the best about a person and only believing the worst about a person. Brother sister, if that's you, you are spiritually sick with pride. And the Lord calls you to repent. Because not only is pride a sin against God, it also will lead you to destruction. Because watch the flow here. You've got pride that leads to the development of some sort of different doctrine that therefore leads to the development of different behaviors, all of these things here, and that leads also to new and different desires. And so the false teachers in this passage that began with a desire to serve God, though that gets morphed to a wrong teaching, false teaching... Now their desires have been so corrupted and morphed that now they see God as a means to an end. Verse 5, the end of it, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Talking about financial gain. 
And that's been something that's been in the church ever since the early days. Using God as a way to make a dollar. In the Middle Ages, you had the indulgences. Buy this, and you won't, your loved ones won't be in purgatory as long. Pay me money, and I'll pray, and they'll get out of purgatory. Now you got televangelists. you got the prosperity gospel false teachers. But for you, maybe it's not, you know, you're going to wind up being some sort of false teacher that fleeces the flock, but still, unchecked pride will lead you to develop a different doctrine of some sort, complete with different behaviors and different desires. And so beware of its deception. Beware of your pride. But then look at verse 6 and what Paul does here. This, this whole imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Paul turns the phrase. And so look at it. We'll, we'll kind of jump into the middle of verse 5 so you can see how he turns it. And constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And here's the switch. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Not financial. He's not talking financial here. Paul is saying godliness is not a means to financial gain. Godliness is the gain. That's the gain. Knowing Christ, having your sins forgiven, being adopted into God's family, and then now having a heavenly father who loves you, is for you, is with you, is not something that leads to something even better. No, it is the supreme gain that you could ever have. I mean, why gain the whole wide world just to lose your soul? And when Jesus says that, he's saying your soul is infinitely more important than the whole world. Not just because the world is short and eternity is long, but because true contentment can only be found. True and lasting contentment can only be found in Christ. It cannot be found in the things of this world. And true contentment is not about self-sufficiency, but it's about Christ's sufficiency. It's about finding your all in Him. But contentment is not just like something that you have all of a sudden as you come to know Christ. It's something that has to be learned. It's something that needs to be understood and learned. And so that's number two in your notes this morning. Number one, beware of pride. Number two, learn contentment. All right, part of the training plan for godliness, learn contentment. And so what I want to do as we talk about learning contentment, I want to flip over a couple pages. So turn to your left. If you have a black hardback Bible on, uh, you know, around you that you're looking at, this is going to be on page 982. Just a couple of letters from Paul to the left. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. 982 and the black ones around you. Which incidentally now I can say it's page 982 in my Bible and it matches up. I bought one that matches what we have. So that's good. Philippians chapter 4. I want you to go there because I want you to see this with me. I'll start reading in verse 10. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. 
you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. This is they'd sent him a, a, a gift. They'd sent him a blessing. He's thanking them for that. Verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So verse 11 again. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation that I am in to be content. And so let's just talk about this. About contentment for just a minute. And learn the kind of contentment Paul is talking about in these two passages. Because he's not just saying be content in any and every absolute place that you're at. In fact there are places where we should be discontent. And so four categories I want to walk through real quick. There is a godly discontentment that we should have. There's a godly contentment we should have. And there's an ungodly discontentment and an ungodly contentment. So four categories. Let's just go through those real quick. And so again, not all discontent is wrong. There is a godly discontentment that God uses in our lives. Because there's a hole in our hearts. And so we're discontent with that whole. It's there because of sin. Our relationship with God has been broken. And so now separated from God, there's something missing. When you look around the world, you can see that this is evident. Everybody knows that there's something wrong. Why do school shootings keep happening over and over and over and over and over? Why do planes keep crashing over and over? There's something wrong. And there's something wrong in each side of, in, inside each one of us. Something's missing. I'm not whole. And what's missing is Christ. And so that discontentedness then is meant to drive us to him where we find grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation and purpose and meaning and contentment in our adoption into God's family, which comes by no act of our own, but by the actions of Christ for us, his life, his death. His resurrection. But then even post-conversion, there's to be a godly discontentment with ourselves and our strength or lack of strength, like the strength of our faith. We want to know Christ more. We want more of Jesus. There's a godly discontentment. But there's also a godly contentment where we're content and this is the one he's talking about, regardless of what's going on, regardless of our circumstances, because we're content in Christ. And so what biblical contentment is, if I was going to give you a definition, so if you want to write this down, here it is. Biblical contentment is just this inward, peaceful, and gracious disposition of joyful rest in God's providence. It's just this Inward, peaceful, and gracious disposition of joyful rest in God's providence. That it's going to be okay. That He is sovereign and He is good. 
And he plays a long game that we can't see the end of, but we trust because he is good. And so whatever comes into our lives, as bad as it may be, and sometimes bad things happen, that's still not outside of God's strength and power. And he works in the midst of it and turns it on its head so often to bring good out of it in ways we do not understand and may never understand in this life because we're limited to like 80 years. And he's playing a long game. And so it's this trust. It's going to be, he's good. He's in control. I'm under his providence. I'm under his care. He loves me. He's for me. It's okay. Even in the midst of bad things. And we're content in Him, not our circumstances. All right? So you've got this godly discontentment and you've got this godly contentment, right? But if we're honest, that's not how we live. We reverse these, we flip these, and instead we live in an ungodly contentment where we seek to find our contentment in anything and everything but Jesus. And then we have an ungodly discontentment where it's not that we're wanting more and more of Christ, but we're wanting more and more stuff. We want more and more of our idols to the point that we become ruled and enslaved to our circumstances Because we look to them, what's going on circumstantially for contentment, for purpose, for meaning, for satisfaction, for identity. And so we've got to learn this godly contentment for the glory of God and our own good. Our own good as well. Because God wants us to, like his children, to be joyful, not in stuff, but in him. He wants wants us to be satisfied. He wants us to be content. And the only way you're ever going to be content in a long, like, lasting, have lasting contentment is to find your contentment in Him. If you don't find your contentment in Him, you're never going to find it. You're never going to find contentment. You'll run from one thing to this next thing to this next thing to this next thing, trying to find something that will give you joy, trying to find something that will give you peace, trying to find something that will give you meaning and purpose, but the buzz will not last. You'll get a high from it for a little while, but it will not last. You need more. You need new stuff. You, so you bounce and you bounce and you bounce and you bounce and you bounce. And then when the crucible of life hits, it will buckle under the weight and come crushing down around you. And everything else in your life will also come crushing down around you because all that you are, your measure of success, the basis of who you are is wrapped up in what you do. And your circumstances have enslaved you to the point that they dictate to you how you are to feel. And so when things are at some certain level that's subjective and you've defined, I'm happy. I'm good. And when they're not at that level, I'm angry and I'm depressed. But contentment in Christ is freedom from that and the whole point of the gospel is freedom freed from 
God's wrath against our sin, freed from sin, freed from death, freed from Satan, freed from hell, freed from the grave. But not only that, but as one writer puts it, the gospel frees us from this pressure to perform, this slavish demand to become. Because like we talked about last week, that's so often how we identify ourselves. By what we've done, our accomplishments, or what we're doing right now. But the gospel, still quoting here, liberatingly declares that in Christ we already are. Like If you are a Christian, here's the good news. Who you really are has nothing to do with you. How much you can accomplish, who you can become, your behavior, whether it's good or bad, your strengths, your weaknesses, your sordid past, your family background, your education, your looks, on and on and on. Your identity is firmly anchored in Christ's accomplishment, not yours. His strengths, not yours. His performance, not yours. His victory, not yours. Your identity is steadfastly established in his substitution, not in your sin. And so the gospel doesn't just free you from what other people think about you. It frees you from what you think about yourself. It frees you from slavery to circumstances. And it opens you up to ever-increasing, everlasting joy. That's why learning contentment in Christ is good for us. It frees us and launches us headlong into our greatest joy and God's greatest glory. Those two things are not opposed. But they're actually one and the same. Since God is utmost, most important thing in his life is to bring glory to himself. And you're like, that's awful. Like, arrogant. He's God. There's nothing higher. So, he is about the glory, bringing glory to himself. But since he's about bringing glory to himself, that means he's not after our beatdown, begrudging submission, but joy in him. Where we find in Him our supreme satisfaction. And just a glad submission to His reign and rule over our life. Where we seek to live for Him and please Him because He is supreme. So it's not that unlike the fact that I want to make my wife happy. Right? I mean, I've used the illustration a gazillion times. And I will again. If I bring flowers home to Sarah on our anniversary and she asks, why did you do this? And I say, it's our anniversary. Like, I don't want you to be mad at me, so here. That's not loving. That doesn't bring her any joy. That does not honor her. But if I tell her, it's because I love you. It's because I'm enamored with you. It's because... You mean everything to me. That same action, different motivation, now speaks to her. And it's the same with God. He's not after our beat down, begrudging submission. Well, cower so you don't send a lightning bolt. 
but I love you. You have saved me from my sin. You have reconciled me back to yourself. And I'm, I don't deserve it. You've just done it because you're good. And so I'll, I love you. I want to serve you. I want to follow you. That makes God look great. And so that's why there's that famous John Piper quote. That God is most glorified in you. When you are most satisfied in him. God gets glory. You get satisfaction. That's how he made the world. And so find contentment in him. Disconnected from circumstances. Because verse 11 again still in Philippians 4 here. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And so Paul's been in wealth and Paul's been in poverty. All right, He was born into wealth. He comes from wealth. And then in Philippi here he's rolled with the Martha Stewart of his day. Sands the issues. But a rich, rich lady. Lydia, the seller of purple. So he's been in plenty before. And then some of us, the mere fact that we live in America means that we're in the top 3% of financial wealth in the entire world. And then we live here in Williamson County, uh, many of us do, that really David's in Rutherford as well, puts you in the top 1% of the world. And so the majority of us, we do not lack for anything. Here's a question for you though. Would you Let's see where your heart's at. Would you be content if everything you valued was taken away from you and you were suddenly forced to live in poverty? Is your content in your stuff? Is your contentment in your stuff? Does it have a grip on you? Others of us, though, we, we did grow up on the poor side of the tracks, and maybe you learn how to handle that uncertainty and deprivation in godly ways. But now the question for you would be, could you be content if you suddenly fell into wealth? Would it instantly corrupt you? Would you feel so guilty with all these possessions that you could scarcely look at yourself in the mirror? Paul carefully insists that his own contentment operates under both conditions. Because it's not about circumstances. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And what is that secret? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so verse 13 is not this ripped out of context Superman verse that I can do anything, all right? Slap an S on my shirt and don't forget about, you know, no need for, you know, like kryptonite means nothing to me. I can do anything in Christ. It's not what this verse is about. Don't, don't be a fool. If you want to fly, go to pilot school. Don't go jump off the AT&T building screaming, I can do everything in Christ. It's ridiculous. verse has nothing to do with that sort of stuff. It has nothing to do with football games. 
what it is. I mean, God's not promising in this verse to bless anything you want to do or or that you think is a good idea, but like all of Scripture, it's constrained and controlled by context. And the whole context is finding contentment regardless. And so what this is, is Paul saying, or rather Christ saying through Paul, I'll carry you through. I'll carry you through abundance or want. No matter what comes, I'm here and I'll carry you through. So be content in me. I'm enough. There's nothing, Romans 8, 35, that will separate you from my love. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so true contentment comes from being rooted in the eternal God, not the temporal self. Christ's sufficiency, not self-sufficiency. And so find your contentment in Him, and no matter what comes, plenty or want, your contentment, your joy, your hope is secure because it's predicated upon Christ, not fluctuating circumstances. They don't control you. And so graduates, just real quick, if you don't reach your goals... You're not defined by that. If your dreams don't come true, you're not defined by that. You're defined by Christ. And so be content in Him and be free. Live free. Be content in who you are. And then also be content in what you have. Flip back to 1 Timothy. And look at verse 7. 1 Timothy 6, verse 7. I'll start with verse 6. The godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these, we will be content. John D. Rockefeller is probably the richest person who has ever lived in history. All right? Like, in his prime, he was worth 2% of the entire U.S. economy. So adjusting that to today, that would mean he would be worth, if, if the economy is $20 trillion, he would be worth $400 billion. And when he died, his aide was asked how much he had left behind. And the aide answered simply, all of it. Because you can't take a nickel with you. Everybody financially is worth zero at death. It stays here. It's why. 
Make the foolish trade to live for that which stays here. Instead of that which lasts forever. That's a bad investment. He left it all behind. You can't take it with you. So be content with what you have. Anything above that is a blessing. All right? And it's to be enjoyed and utilized. Paul's not advocating for some, uh, some kind of poverty gospel here. Right? The, this passage is not, you know, poverty against wealth. That's not what it is at all. It's contentment against covetousness, against greed, against the love of money. And so learn contentment. Discontentment is life's burglar. It will rob all the other experiences of, God's, of a God-given joy. Don't let it rob you. Learn contentment. And then also, and this is number three, guard against greed and the love of money. Guard against greed and the love of money. Look at verse 9, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so the warning here is against a trap, against a snare. Because that is what greed does to you. That's what the love of money, the worship of money, trying to find contentment in money does to you. It traps you. Now to be clear, money is not evil. Okay, Money is morally neutral. It's all about how you view it and how you use it. So if anything, pride is the root of all evil. Trying to put yourself on the throne and remove God from the throne. But the fact remains that greed is one of those sins that leads to other sins. All right? The love of money is like a Pandora's box. You open it up and there's all kinds of stuff that's coming out. And so your greed will not just stop with money. If you're greedy for money, you're going to be greedy in other areas of your life. And it will result in your destruction. Look at the last five words of this section. Pierced themselves with many pangs. The language in Greek here is gruesome. It literally means impaled with many griefs. I think definitely this is implying like the pangs of conscience. But more than that, I think it's referring to personal miseries that have taken place in people's lives because they have like, had, had stakes driven through them because they were trapped by money. They were deceived, and then it brought ruin and destruction into their lives because they fell at its feet and worshipped it. One of the most influential men in my life, in my spiritual formation, is the epitome of this. He's a guy who cannot tell you how he helped me grow in Christ for years and years. He's a man in ministry, and he, you know, he lived in the struggle of providing for his family, which it can be. And so exhausted from that, he left the ministry. I have no problem with him doing that. 
That might have been a good thing for his family. But then he went full bore and fell in love with money. Right? He was blessed. He got into pharmaceutical sales. And he blew up. He was like winning every single award all the time. And so you just watched house, bigger house, bigger house. Now they're in a country club. Now they're living on a golf course. Now they're not really even going to church that much. They're not generous. They were generous when they had nothing. Now they're not generous at all. You just watch it taking over his life. He gets anything he wants, when he wants it, how he wants it, wins every single award, everybody's doing it, and he thinks he can do anything, and that attitude leads to an affair. And he loses his family. He's unrepentant. So he's divorced. And he has broken relationships because he will not repent. And lack of repentance means because he may not actually be a believer. And Jesus was in his theology, but he wasn't its focus. Money was. And so a love of money will destroy you. This is a guy I would have said, no, this guy, no, there's no worries about this guy. Love of money will destroy you and will pierce you through with many pangs. That's what he has endured. Because money traps you. It's a snare. It promises you satisfaction, but it never delivers. Solomon learned this the hard way. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Money flat out, it won't satisfy you. It can't. It doesn't have that power. John D. Rockefeller, again, he was asked one time how much money was enough, and he replied, just a little bit more. It's just this insane treadmill where we honestly think, and we've talked about it before, if I could just get more of what already does not satisfy me, if I could just get more of it, then I would be satisfied. That is insane. And it is a treadmill. And you get nowhere. Money will not satisfy you. It will set up a trap and snare you. And then destroy you with a wasted life. There's a scene in the movie Private Ryan. <clears throat> that puts a lump in my throat every single time I watch it. And probably a lump in the throat of every man in here. And it's where James Ryan as an old man. Is standing in front of Captain Miller's grave. And distraught by the memories of World War II and Miller's call to him to earn it. He looks at his wife and he, he says, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. Nobody in that moment comforts themselves with their possessions or wealth that their life was well lived. No one. So don't do that your own good and joy and contentment and satisfaction in life. Don't make that bad trade. Don't be deceived. Look to Christ for contentment. He's come that you might have life and he's come that you might get off this insane treadmill. And find him. The one who loves you. Who lived a perfect life for you, died a substitutionary death for you, rose in victory for you because he loves you. 
and he's for you. And he wants the best for you. And when we see him as supreme, we recognize his supremacy over all things. And our soul is satisfied in him. Then all these other things that we've looked to to be God replacements, all of a sudden, they return to just being things. They're just stuff. They're not our idols. They're not our masters. They're not our identity. And we're free to rest in Christ's identity for us. We're free from the bondage to toil for meaning and satisfaction on this treadmill of false hopes and leaky cisterns. And now we're able to just live underneath the providential hand of a sovereign and good God, regardless of our circumstances. One who's always there, always for us, And who loves us enough to even break our fingers to get us to let go of the things that we're holding on to so tightly that can destroy us. And so, dear friends, beware of the deceptions of pride. Learn contentment in Christ. And guard against greed. These are just some practical steps in the training plan for godliness. And your own joy. Let's pray. Father, help us to trust your word. Help us to not be so prideful in ourselves that we think we know better than you how to run our lives and what we should do in our lives and what will make us happy and content. Break our pride. And let us look to you for what only you can provide. Everything else is a leaky cistern. And it will bust under the weight that we put on it. It cannot satisfy. And oh God, thank you. Thank you that even as we do that a million times over, you'll break our fingers to get us to let go, to get us to see that we're wasting our lives and we're wasting what you have called us to do. And yet there's grace. You give grace. And so, Father, for those of us who are in that place this morning, we're recognizing how we've drifted, how we've replaced you with things, and how we've looked to other things for satisfaction and meaning. Lord, your grace finds us. You you invade the broken places. You bind up our hearts. You heal wounds. You bring strength and healing. And you give grace and forgiveness and mercy. It's new every morning. Let us grab hold of it and live in it. Let us not be someone who looks at it 
like a swimming pool and says, oh, that looks good. Let us be someone who dives into it and revels in it. Revels in you. And give us contentment. Regardless of whatever happens in our life. In Christ's name, amen.